Are you new to coaching? Starting out as a coach can be incredibly overwhelming, especially when you aren't given much direction from your administration. That's why I created the New Coaches Playbook. It includes a roadmap to help you start building your coaching foundation and a guide to seven podcast episodes in order that will give you the steps and ideas you need to build relationships, define your role, communicate with your admin, and make a plan to start coaching. Coach, what's your instructional coaching personality type? Have you ever wondered what superpowers make you a really strong coach? and what areas you can strengthen with just a little bit of direction? Well, now you can find out. I created the What's Your Instructional Coaching Personality Type Quiz to help you answer this very question. Just head to buzzingwithmissb.com slash quiz with a capital Q to take the two-minute quiz and get your coaching personality type sent right to your inbox. Even better, you'll get a playlist of podcast episodes handpicked just for you to help you hone your superpowers and strengthen your areas of growth. I'm so excited to share this quiz with you, so don't wait to take it. Go to buzzingwithmissb.com slash quiz with a capital Q and learn so much about your coaching style. You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey, coaches. Welcome to episode 121 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. This month has been all about what do you do here anyway? Or a less irritating way to say that could be, what do coaches do? (laughs) We talked about having a coaching mindset, facilitating planning, and data PLCs too. But today we're going to spend some time talking about something important that coaches can do because they have a different perspective on the school system. We're talking to Dr. Lindsay Wilson about how coaches can advocate for equity at their schools. Dr. Wilson is an author, trainer, and speaker on topics of diversity and equity. I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today because as coaches, we have a unique perspective on how things work at our school. We can see the decisions that are made at the top, and we see classrooms where those decisions actually play out, and we can tell how they're actually affecting students when sometimes the people who are making those decisions or policies don't see the effect on kids. Dr. Wilson is here today to help us think about how we can advocate for our kids from our positions as instructional coaches. So I'm really looking forward to welcoming her to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Wilson. Thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to be uh, here and, and to talk about a topic that's so dear to my heart. It is, I can tell because it comes out in your work. I was, you know, I was able to I followed you on Instagram for a while. I was able to take out, check out your website. And I just saw so many great, um, like different talks that you do and different presentations you have. So I'm really excited to talk to you today and, and hopefully give some people some tools that they can walk away with. Great. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So could you introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe talk a little bit about who you are, how you ended up you know, doing the work that you're doing and what kind of work you focus on right now? Absolutely. So I am Dr. Lindsay Wilson, and I uh, help organizations and schools, teachers, and other early childhood providers understand uh, equity and really their role 
and, and system changes. Uh, my, my model is equity is everyone's work. And so we all have a really important part to, to really closing the disparities that we see here in the United States across the country. Uh, and so how I ended up here, I actually worked with an early Head Start program for uh, about almost 10 years. And so worked in various capacities, started as a home visitor, and then moved to a mental health uh, practitioner for early Head Start program. And it led me back into school as one of the things that I seen uh, during that time was the different reactions to uh, fathers. Uh, and so actually fathers, <laughs> I would walk into some homes and fathers would be super excited to see me and ready to share everything that was happening. And then I would walk in other homes and fathers would run until it, my home visit was over. And so that really led me back into school to, to learn more about why. And, and during that journey, I really seen what I would consider uh, or call uh, a deficit-based perspective happening in research when it uh, pertained to early childhood education uh, and, and communities of color. So that led me on this path that I am now. Uh, and, and I focus on equity work, social equity work, and early childhood education. Well, that would be, that's exactly what I would like to know more about. Can you define equity for us to kind of help us picture what it looks like in schools and explain a little bit about how it's different from fairness? Absolutely. And so um, uh, equity and equality are two terms that actually get used and confused uh, uh, quite often. And so when I describe equity, I'm actually referring to fairness. That's Equity is the, the route to true fairness, whereas equality really zones in on sameness. And so offering all kids the same exact thing, regardless of if they need it or if they it will benefit or burden them. And so a, a clear cut example that I often use, uh, I spent quite a bit of time in uh, Seattle, Washington. And so when I moved there from Minnesota, it was, it was quite interesting. It was a lot of peanut allergies, right? Mm -hmm. And so I use that analogy as I'm describing the difference between equity and equality. And so equality would actually say, regardless of if a child is allergic to peanut butter, if that's what we're having for our daily snack, they're going to get it, mm -hmm. right? Whereas equity is really about understanding the unique needs of each one of our, our students and their families, which requires us to know histories around communities and, and why they show up in the ways in which they do so that we can meet the unique needs of each student so everyone can thrive. Um, and so I would describe equity as a concept of fairness, which really pushes back, right, on, on, on how we were or how some were raised. If you had siblings or if you had children and one gets more of anything than the other, um, they often say, hey, that's not fair, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think um, there's an opportunity for us to redefine and help redefine that for children, mm -hmm. right? And so is it actually not fair or is it not the same thing? Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes we really have to uh, provide the necessary resources for children to, to thrive. And it won't look the same for all of our children. 
Yes, that's that's so true. I used my students. I often had um, students with special needs, and and even kids who didn't have quote special needs, but everybody needs something different. And so from working with kids, they used to ask, you know, well, why do they get this and why do they get that? And I would tell them, in here, everybody gets what they need. So if you need that, you'll get it, and if you don't, you won't get it. But I have glasses. You don't wear glasses. Am I going to put glasses on everybody now because everybody should have the same thing? No, that would be terrible. That would not help you. It would actually hurt you, you know? So everybody's going to get what they need. And it's like, and to kids, that made sense. It, you know, when, like, your, like your peanut allergy, you know, story. It, it's the same thing. That makes total sense to them. They understand it. But sometimes the adults get a little more hung up on it. <laughs> well, and you know, that's funny that you mentioned that because that's what I often hear as I do trainings for early childhood providers and, and um, programs and so forth. And so as I'm working with practitioners, they often say, this makes complete sense. Now, now tell me what I tell parents, right? Um, because it is the parents who are going to call and wonder why their child may not have gotten the same thing that mm -hmm. another child has gotten. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned a minute ago, a deficit based approach that you were seeing in the research around early childhood. And I just wanted to follow up on that. What were you, I've, I've heard this before, and I, I, I feel like I have an understanding of what it is, but I would love to hear what does that look like? What were you seeing in the research around early childhood that you felt represented a deficit based approach? So, uh, so thank you for allowing me to clarify that point. And so what I was referencing at that time, uh, mm -hmm. again, I was really interested in fathers. And yeah. so when I say a deficit-based perspective, when I was looking at early childhood research, particularly around Black fathers or Hispanic fathers, mm -hmm. uh, it often uh, highlighted them or the research really zoned in on fathers who may not have lived in the home. Okay. Right? Or fathers who uh, often worked uh, within the Hispanic culture and so then, or excuse me, and within the ethnicity. Uh, and so uh, may not have been at home in the same capacity. And so the research was really lacking just how involved these fathers were in spite of some of the uh, different ways that families looked. And we know that uh, research impacts policies and procedures and the ways in which things uh, trickle down into the classroom. And so if we're only studying uh, fathers of color from a certain perspective, then we're missing all of the goodness that they have to offer uh, in their own uniqueness. And so uh, that's what I mean when I mean deficit-based perspective. And, and if I zone in a little more, uh, my research was around African-American fathers in this absent uh, narrative that has been established um, that doesn't resonate with a lot of Black fathers. Mm -hmm. I saw that on your site. And I think I saw that you have a book about that, right? I do have a book about that. And so I actually, I, so I wrote two children's book. One is around equity, uh, Fair is Fair, Isn't It? And, mm -hmm. and that book really, again, stemmed from, I was at a, uh, a conference and I believe I was in Austin, Texas at that conference right before COVID. Uh, and so at that time, Macy had just uh, released or just uh, previously re released their equity mission statement and, and all of this goodness that everyone got. And so helping people understand how to advance that in the classroom. And, and one of the main questions that I got around that is what are, what are the resources out there? Mm -hmm. So I took the time to write a book, Fair is Fair, Isn't It? 
And it really is about a little girl who's helping her class understand equity. And so lots of clear examples there. And, and while I wrote the children's book for children, I really also wrote it for for parents (laughs) who will read it to their children. And so hopefully they'll be able to shift their lens as their kids are. Um, And so it will be an epiphany together. Uh, so yes, so that that's one of my books. And then My Daddy Did It is my most recent book. And it is about an African-American father and his young daughter who is really excited about all the amazing things that her and her father mm-hmm. do together and all the first memories that they've established. How sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I love that you focus on early childhood. And I think I've never been an early childhood person. I was like up in the upper elementary person. And now I have a four-year-old and I'm just so interested in early childhood (laughs) and I just love it. Like having seen her learn so much in the first four years of her life, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old and it's just amazing to their brains just like explode at this age. And the learning is so obvious, you know, they sponges, right. And they just really just soak it up and they develop so fast. We know those first five years uh, is, is the prime time for all of, you know, everything to, to really happen. Yes. Yeah. That's what I always say. If I had, if I were, had like a million dollars or any kind of huge amount of grant money, I would do something with the little kids, the little people, you know, because they're the ones, if you can get, get to them there, you've made an impact for the rest of their lives. So I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about what your work looks like at that, that early childhood level? Absolutely. And so um, the work looks like a couple of things. When we think about equity, specifically when we're talking about social emotional skills, right? And so oftentimes we talk about, uh, or we assess young children's social emotional skills around how they can enter and exit play groups, Mm -hmm. uh, the ways in which, you know, they interact with others and so forth. And I, I really believe that as we continue to really zone in on equity in early childhood, equity falls within that realm. Right. And so those social emotional skills, a part of that is, is what you highlighted earlier, understanding that if I don't need that particular uh, resource or service or classes or items or whatever the case may be, um, having not only that empathy for the other person who may need it, but also the understanding that, um, and this is not an early childhood term, but it's not a zero sum game, right? And so how do we teach children very early on that if you have glasses because they help you see and I don't need glasses, mm-hmm. it's okay. And we both can uh, be in the same classroom and we both can get the other things that we need so that we can thrive. And really, I, I see that a part, a major part of social emotional development. Uh, The other thing as it regards to equity work and early childhood is we know that a lot of our curriculums don't really address the nuances of diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we have some sprinkled here and there, but they don't get to the actual root of uh, how diverse our communities are and the historical piece of why things look the way that they do and they impact our little ones in classrooms, right? Um, And so equity is really to supplement some of those other wonderful curriculums out there that that are just missing that important piece. And when we think about ECLIC and and things like that, who have done assessments and really have found where there's areas of growth, um, teachers can, teachers, coaches, 
early childhood providers can find ways to supplement uh, their in-classroom education by, by providing kids these real-life examples. Mm-hmm. So what are some examples of inequitable practices that you've seen negatively affect kids in the classroom? And what are some things that we could do to change those practices? Yeah, I think there, um, there, there's a couple of things that we can think about uh, as we're thinking about classrooms, right? I think for many years, we focused on representation, Mm-hmm. Right. So do we have uh, representation in dolls around ability and gender and 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 race and ethnicity? Do we have posters and things in that nature? And I really believe that it goes beyond uh, just that type of representation. I believe that that's uh, the first step. Right. Because it is important for people to be able to see themselves in spaces uh, and, and in which they're, they're learning. But uh, one of the biggest opportunities is to really tap into the funds of knowledge from uh, the communities of our children, right? But like kids, I always say like kids, and I'm going to use fathers because that's my, you know, other passion, but kids know their, their fathers, right? Like they know how they smell. They know the language that they use. They know, they may not be able to tell you exactly what they do for work, but like they know the tools or whatever the case may be. It's the same thing from a cultural perspective, right? And so uh, most recently I've had the opportunity to work with a classroom and we talked about what if you had a barbershop play area in your classroom, mm-hmm. right? Because so much learning happens in that space for, mm-hmm. for children of, of, of color, particularly African-American children. There's so many rituals around uh, by age one, they go in for their first haircut. And, and that's where, you know, parents are talking about the, their child's development. And just there's so much happening there. How do we bring that into the classroom, right? And really allow our kids to shine and teach other children what that looks like. Uh, it's another opportunity to bring parents into the classroom for them to feel welcome and, and so forth. Um, so that's a couple of things I can go on for hours. So I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> that's true. We do like just with that specific example, we do tend to see the same things, the, the uh, post office, the grocery store, right? Those same sorts of settings, but, but you, creating settings that might better reflect some of the experiences that some kids have had, um, and give them an opportunity to kind of act that out and bring that into school. That is such an interesting idea. I love that. Um, when we think about equity, like it impacts everybody on a campus. So what are some examples of inequitable practices that have affected teachers negatively? Have you seen anything like that? I mean, I know that I'm sure you have, but <laughs> what can you tell us about that? And what can we do to change some of those practices? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we see we see inequities um, in education and in a couple of different ways. We see inequities on, on uh, preschool enrollment and what students are enrolled. Uh, we also see uh, uh, many years ago, it was this notion, well, not notion, but it, it, I'm not sure if you remember the, what was it? The 50,000 50, word, word gap. gap. Yeah, yeah. So the word gaps and things in that nature. And really, again, when we're talking about inclusivity and, and equity, how do we again, look at communication different, right? Because we know some cultures rather sing to their kids than read or or prefer to talk, right? And and so how do we be inclusive in those spaces as well? 
Um, but as it regards to some, so, so those are some of the inequities that, that we see within early childhood education. And then who are as early childhood education providers are, right? And so I think that there's still room for, for uh, inclusivity there, particularly around uh, for early childhood men. Uh, so we're talking gender, but also intersectionality, right? So gender and race. Um, or ability in race uh, within our within our early childhood profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's such a it's, it sometimes startles me because I live in and I live in El Paso, Texas. So I'm on the border, uh, the Mexican American border, at Mexican U.S. border, and we our population here is like over eighty percent Hispanic, and the teaching population reflects that. And there's like a university here, a state university, and most people go there because they're commuter families often, you know, working and providing for the home and going back and forth. And the teaching population does reflect what the population of people looks like here. So, and, and we have a tremendous bilingual programs and, you know, across many of the districts, you know, dual language is very common um, and it's, it's available to many. And, and so it always surprises me whenever I read statistics about who is who are the teachers in other places and how little they resemble the population of the, those cities or the kids that they're serving you know that always surprises me because it's I don't see that happening here but we're kind of in a bubble you know there's just nowhere else to go <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a desert there's not a lot around here um so <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's part of it like geographically we're kind of isolated so you know that I mean I don't know but um but yeah it's 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 always surprising to me because it's, it's a pretty stark difference as far, as far as how many people of color, how, you know, are, are in education, like actually teaching. And then as you move up the food chain and you have, you know, you're, you have your administrators, they're more likely to be male. You know, I mean, it's just, it's really something. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that is not the common practice of, of, of uh, professionals or educators always representing the population that they serve. And so, um, that's one of the things that we think about. And then just language inclusivity um, and the ways in which we think about how we attempt to be inclusive, right? And so many times things are written in English and translated right. in other languages, um, making English the norm. But we, we have to recognize that it doesn't always translate uh, the same, right? right. And so that's, that's a very true concept for the word equity, right? And so as I'm speaking with uh, Spanish uh, population, that word does not translate directly in the same ways yet uh, as it does in English. And so that's another thing that we have to, you know, just be on the lookout for. Yes, that's a good point. At, at each school that I've worked at, we've had, I mean, many of the teachers are bilingual. The majority of people in the city are bilingual. And so we've had a designated individual, a teacher who translates, and because they, many of them are, were, are native Spanish speakers, um, they, but, but that's only in the two languages, keep it, I mean, that's not any other languages that we might see, right? Those are the two dominant languages in our city. But um, because they were native Spanish speakers, they're usually very good at, I mean, and they're the designated translator, so they're good at it. Um, they're really good at, at making it accurate in that language, right? The, the intent and not just the translation. But they don't get paid very much for that. It's a, it's like a teeny tiny little stipend and translation is a lot of work, especially when you're translating as many documents as these schools require, you know, to be translated. It's tons. 
Absolutely. And, and, and sometimes, um, and, and I don't know if that's the case there, but it is added work as well. Oh, yeah. Right. And so it's not that they don't have uh, their additional work, but that is added to their already full and busy schedule. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I would, I'd be told, Oh, send, send it to Veronica. Okay. I'll send it to Veronica. And she's got like a pile of things that everybody else has sent her as well, you know, and it's, and I think she had like a $200 stipend for the year. So, I mean, it was just ridiculous. And uh, that, and she actually got a stipend. Not most people don't. So it's, um, it's, that is a huge, the bilingual program is so much additional work for bilingual teachers and they do get a tiny little stipend and it does not equate to the massive amounts of work that they have to do. Absolutely. So what are some common challenges that you see to making positive changes towards more equitable practices? Yeah, that's a great question. So some of the common challenges that that I see um, towards moving to equitable practices is uh, one, teachers have a full caseload already, right? And so there's a lot of different things happening. And Equity is what I like to call both a process and an outcome, right? And so the process piece is just as important as the outcome, whereas diversity uh, is more of a straight uh, outcome, right? So like who's not in the room and then how do we get them in the room? Okay, we did it, right? Um, Inclusivity is very much like that. Who haven't we heard from? Okay, how do we create a space to hear from everyone? We did it. Right. Equity, on the other hand, requires us to do a little more work. Right. So we one have to understand the disparities that that we face locally, um, because while we know that there are some national trends, not every space is exactly the same. And so one understanding the disparities that are happening uh, in the classroom. And then two, I think another challenge is we're kind of going back and forth. I, I, we've seen a, a large shift where uh, classrooms and spaces, uh, educational spaces, were becoming more comfortable with calling out the disparities to mm-hmm. be intentional around uh, making uh, efforts to reduce them by putting in specific policies, procedures, and, and, and practices. Um, we have seen that take another turn as well, right? And so uh, what we know is we can't heal what we can't name, mm-hmm. right? And so the example that I, I give to classrooms and, and schools, particularly for those who believe that talking about this will actually create more of a divide is um, when you go to a doctor you would want them to identify what they're actually treating before just giving you something to treat it, Mm -hmm. right? And you might not even trust um, the treatment that they offer up if you don't truly understand what is going on. And so when when we talk about one of those challenges, that's that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, And then recognizing that inherently, if we are not intentional around this work, we may perpetuate the inequity. And that's hard to hear sometimes because um, that is not often the intent, but that can be the impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, yeah, everything you're saying about 
I've, I've just heard that so many times where, oh, well, nobody really had a problem with any of this stuff until everybody started talking about it. Or nobody really had an issue with, you know, racism, for example, or sexism or any of these things. And now everybody talks about it all the time. No, no there's, there's a reason people are talking. It's, it's not that, that in that order. It's opposite. they're talking about it because it was an issue, because it has been an issue. And the only way we can make things better is to figure out what's going on and talk about it and fix it. But like you said, if we can't acknowledge what's happening, if we can't name it, if we can't identify it, then we can't take steps towards, towards repairing it. Because we have to thoroughly understand that issue. And I think we have to understand that issue in ways that many of the people who have made the decisions in the past can't necessarily understand it. And that's a challenge. I, I wish I could say it better than you just said. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. And I think the other piece of it is when we hear that, um, that, that, that narrative is uh, to remind people that people have been talking about this for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so school engagement is one of the ways that we can think about that. So there has been a longstanding um, set of literature around how to get uh, parents of, of color or in, in some cases, parents uh, of children who are who experience a disability actively involved in school. Mm -hmm. Right. And so while that was the narrative, what that tells us today is that was a problem. Right. Right. So that was a problem that some families weren't connected to schools in the ways in which others were connected. Mm -hmm. When we think about, you know, children who are are disciplined and just the the history of um, of, of our, our classes for children with disabilities and how that the root of where that came from, um, again, will speak to the notion of there have been longstanding communities that have expressed that there's disparities or a disparate impact, uh, but they went unheard or they didn't have the right avenues to for that their their message to be um, brought forth, right? Mm -hmm. And so it really did take uh, some people who were in higher levels to make those bold statements and changes. And, and so it's not a new concept by any means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And that's a good point. I can remember in, in high school, um, like there was a certain wing of mm -hmm. students with special needs and we never saw them anywhere else. And it was like a cave and it was just, you know, it's, and that's, that's not okay. And it wasn't okay at the time, but now mm -hmm. people know it's not okay for the most part. <laughs> I think. And, um, and so changes are being made, but that definitely ruffled a lot of feathers for a long time. Absolutely. So I know you share about an equity framework, right? So what could it look like if a school made an effort to implement this framework and equitable practices from top to bottom? What would that, how would that school look? Yeah. So from top to bottom, I think it would, it would really require four distinct steps. And the first is to normalize, right? So really start to normalize these conversations and creating safe spaces for teachers and for administrators and for parents to feel that they can uh, discuss this type of uh, inequities that we see within the school, right? So that, that's the first step to it. And, and that's really hard, right? And so for so long, you didn't talk about difference. Right. And so and particularly when you think about what young children were taught, 
Yeah. Right. Like, not oh, don't point that out. Yeah. Like, and so it's a bad I, thing. Exactly. I openly share that um, my brothers, one has a hearing aid, the other has a cochlear implant. Mm-hmm. And so I had the opportunity to watch that happen uh, firsthand, right? And so, so many children were so curious about uh, mm-hmm. what he had on his ear. And Which is I totally th- reasonable. I mean, I hate to interrupt, but that's normal, you know, <laughs> for children to be curious about something. Yeah, that's right. what they do. They want, they want one because they're like, well, wait a minute, what is that? And how do I get one of those? Like, it looks really cool, right? Yeah. Um, and so that was an opportunity that that my family got to take um, to also help other families, right? Because we had to be intentional with how we frame that, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes it wasn't in the most polite ways with yeah. adults, right? Like sometimes adults were like, oh, we can't believe you would give a kid a Bluetooth. Well, oh. no, that's not a Bluetooth. That is actually <laughs> a, a cochlear implant. And that is how he hears, right? But but it took a lot for us to also be able to demonstrate to uh, to Jacob, who's my my younger brother, that when people ask you, they're curious, yeah. right? And so it was a learning opportunity both for us as a family not to get frustrated because there was quite a bit of questions around it, mm-hmm. but also for the other families to know that it's okay for your kids to ask about that piece of it and he's open to share it mm-hmm. right and sometimes i mean not all the time because sometimes right. you just don't want to deal but <laughs> for the most part right mm-hmm. yes yes um and, and the same thing around race and ethnicity and mm-hmm. so when i when i was doing home visits i walked into a family's home and me as an african-american woman walking uh, at that time i was in mankato minnesota uh, and I walked into a family's house and the little girl in all sincerity said, mom, she's chocolate like my ice cream. <laughs> right. And I, and that's exactly what I did. I laughed, right. For a couple of reasons, like mom was mortified and she was just like, oh, we don't teach, race. you know, we don't teach about race. And that was my prime opportunity. I mean, I didn't have the language that I have now, but that was my opportunity to tell her. It's okay because if she thinks I'm ice cream, then I can tell there there's no negative conversation That's happening. Right. That's right. Right? Yes. Because ice cream is something kids normally love. And yes. so hopefully <laughs> we can build that same relationship. But I but I think again, that was that opportunity that would make or break the ways that she perceived recognizing difference. And in that case, it was race. Mm-hmm. Right. And so shunning kids and telling them not to talk about it has mm-hmm. created spaces. Now, when you ask to your your previous question, sorry, and it took a minute to get here about what schools can do. We have to go back and normalize it. Yeah. Right. Because yes. many teachers were taught. Shh, don't don't say that. Yes. Very true. I've, I've seen that happen so many times. Even, you know, I have mom friends, you know, friends with kids of similar age to mine. And they'll, they'll comment, the kids will sometimes comment on people's appearance or, you know, with all the things that kids notice, they notice everything, they see everything. And sometimes they say it. And whenever you say, Shh, I don't see it. it's just so they, they learn, oh, it's a bad thing. It must be bad to be that way. So I'm not going to say anything about that anymore. And and one of my friends said, well, what do I say? I said, well, you can just, everybody's different. 
Some people are this, some people are that. Everybody looks different. Everybody has a different shape. Everybody has a different size. Everybody has, you know, everybody's different. And think about people in our family. Some people are this, some people are that, you know, and, and that's good. That's okay. And so it's good to talk about it because it's real. That's just what people are. Everybody's different. And, um, and they can understand that stuff. And if you say it enough, they start to internalize that, you know, but like saying it has to become normalized to talk about it. It has to be okay. Absolutely. And, and the last piece that I'll add to that piece. So I love your advice around just talk about it, right? Because sometimes now we're in spaces where we've been taught again, fairness means that you get the same amount of airtime that I get. And if you don't, if you get more, it's not fair. So we have to re really shape that notion to truly help kids understand and help ourselves understand. Because I'll, I'll be quite frank, I love mashed potatoes. And so if we go to a restaurant and your plate has more mashed potatoes, (laughs) I might be asking about fairness. No, but really we have to think about how we can reshape that. And the same thing around getting out of our comfort zone to help our kiddos understand uh, that it's okay to have these conversations. And then just as we do with any and everything else, help them understand the dynamic around having these conversations. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that the, the thing that I often leave with parents, right? So not early childhood providers as much as I do with parents, particularly parents who like to have a healthy conversation around why it's important not to teach their kids about race and our ethnicity. Mm-hmm. I like to remind them um, be, by six months, your, your kids are seeing color, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what is not taught is caught. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really good way to say it. I like that. I'm going to use that very soon. <laughs> I really like that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it is it by four that they make predictions about what people will do based on their race, something along, I think it's four years old, something like that. Yeah. That just really stuck in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's one of my training points. If we walk through mm-hmm. each stage of this, right? Because they, they go from noticing race to then um, noticing the stereotypes around how yeah. we as a society have really labeled people, right? And so when you think about, again, going back to the social emotional aspect, if you are a community, if you are a person of color or uh, a person who is experiencing uh, some disability, Imagine internalizing how society has really shaped a narrative around you. So mm-hmm. if kids understand that, then they look at themselves and wonder, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And so how do we, we break that notion? Because that's that internalization piece mm-hmm. of it. And then we, we see that children at a very young age start to demonstrate that. I mean, we can think about the research um, that was done uh, with the dolls, right? And so I don't know if you're familiar with the doll test that happened. The original one, I think, happened, and don't, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to name the year because I can't remember. But there was the original one um, in the early 19, I think, 60s or 7, 70s, maybe, um, around the doll test, and then they redid one. And well, the dolls, about, the dolls, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like, yeah, like uh-huh. they did this at the trial as well, right? At the um. Didn't they do it during Brown versus Board of, Board of Education where they actually showed the child the doll? Yes. Mm-hmm. And they asked them which one was better or something along those lines. And the child chose the white doll, even though it was a black child. Yes. I remember that. Yeah. It's pretty. And that, that 
that has been consistent for years since the very first doll test, right? And so what we know is the ways in which we were operating for those who said, hey, it wasn't an issue until we started talking about it. Right. What we know is it has been an issue. Mm-hmm. Kids have internalized that they're bad or ugly or other children have internalized based on skin color who's bad and ugly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also about like, like gender, it's a very common thing. Oh, he's a boy. He's so wild. He's always hurting himself. He's a boy. He's such a boy. Like, you know, first of all, everybody, all children hurt themselves. Exactly. They all do it. My, I've had to take my daughter to the ER because she hit her head on the fireplace at somebody's house and mm-hmm. wouldn't stop bleeding. Everybody hurts themselves. And mm-hmm. they don't do, there's nothing they do because they are boys. They don't just, you know, that's not causing them to do wild things. If you're really concerned about how wild the child is, you might want to take a look at that, but it's not because they're a boy. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And so, and the same thing, I mean, I think we're starting to get a little more inclusive, but the same thing around this notion of, we don't have a large population of men in early childhood. Mm-hmm. Well, think about it. For a very, from a very young age, we don't encourage boys nurturing. to be mm-hmm. nurturing. Or you're, you know, when they play with a doll, at one point it was encouraged mm-hmm. not to. Instead of, you know, you're going to be a great father, or you're going to be a right. great sibling, or whatever the case is. Uh, and so we don't socialize them in the same way that we socialize. Uh, women and and then think about it they become adults and then they uh, they get pregnant and then you see a pregnant couple and you say you're going to be an awesome mom right but how many people say you're going to be an amazing dad that chokes right yeah that chokes me up a little bit how like how sad is that to deprive somebody of that right and then they and then they're expected to just when it happens you've already as as, as we've been encouraged and built up. And so like, we're ready for this big thing because from a very young age, we were told that we can do this. Mm-hmm. And then fathers then are not only, you know, oftentimes uh, micromanaged, <laughs> but also are learning this new role where they didn't have that same type of encouragement. Child. Yes. That is so, that's such a good point. Yeah. But I mean, we, we socialize them a certain way and then we point to that and say, see, this is how they are, mm-hmm. but we built it. And then we're like, well, this is, we're, we're using it to justify the continued action. Yeah. Absolutely. So then you shared about, about normalization. Is that like the first part of the, sorry, <laughs> we kind of got into the weeds, but it was really good. <laughs> so as you can see each step, again, it's a process piece, yeah. right? And so if, uh, I tell, I tell, uh, I tell anybody that I'm working with, I still learn every single day. And so this is not a one and done type thing. There's not a one training that you can go to that now makes you the most equitable person in the world. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or, or now that you can check off a box. Right. And if you don't leave spaces with more questions than you walk into, then I wonder about that type of training. But to your larger point, uh, the next is familiarize, right? So like, know what's happening, know what the data looks like for children who come from lower socioeconomic households, right? And so that you can be intentional with what we are doing. And we're not saying that we're only going to give certain students more, you know, you you know, more um, services, but the services that we do provide should be intentional based on their unique needs. What does the data say about discipline? Right. Mm -hmm. And so we know black boys 
get disciplined at a much higher rate. Our itty bitties are being expelled and suspended from school, mm -hmm. right? And so like, how do we know this data? And so that we can check ourselves, and I mean ourselves being like schools or programs to make sure that we're not perpetuating it. Mm -hmm. And then how do we begin to standardize some of this? So after we say, okay, we can have these conversations and we don't get all nervous about it. And then we know what's happening. And we even took a look at what's going on here. How do we keep it going? Because what often happens is we have big advocates in spaces, right? Who are, who have a passion for this work. So they, they help support it and push it. But then as they leave, mm -hmm. things start to, yeah. 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 The systems are not in place to where it's like self-sustaining and like it continues. It's just because somebody has been pushing for it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is formalizing. Right. And so that gets to that sustainability piece. Like, what are our policies? Mm -hmm. Right. Have we written some of the nuances that need to be in these policies? Who who reads our policies? Is it just us? Mm -hmm. Do yeah. like do we get parents involved to even look at, you know, how they feel about some things that are impacting their day-to-day -day life? Mm -hmm. So so those are the main uh for, for uh, concepts to my equity theory of change. All right. Thank you for that. Childhood education. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. And I feel like that, that basic process would apply at other levels as well, not just early childhood, right? Absolutely. It, it applies at every level, right? Mm -hmm. Because we know, you know, by third grade, what, what are they doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? As it regards to reading and, and, and things in that nature. So it mm -hmm. does absolutely apply. Yes. So as instructional coaches, we're kind of in the middle, like I mentioned before, and we perceive policies that come from the top and have possibly unexpected consequences for kids. Like I'm, I'll give the benefit of the doubt to some of these people who are making the policies and, and say that they maybe don't realize how they're going to play out. And maybe they don't play out with the intention that they were made with. And that maybe that's too generous in some cases, but I think sometimes that's probably the truth. So what can we do when we see this happening? Keeping in mind that we're not administrators. We don't just get to change stuff. Not that they just randomly change things, but sometimes they do. And we're not teachers. So we don't have a classroom of our own. We're kind of in between where we can support in the classroom and see things happening. But we sometimes get to sit at the big table and make help, you know, make have those conversations that make those big decisions. So what can we do whenever we see inequity playing out from policies that are that are maybe poorly written or just not a good idea? Uh, one of the things that I would recommend is be the biggest advocate for disaggregated data, which is data mm -hmm. that is broken down mm -hmm. by subgroups, whether we're yeah. talking race, whether we're talking ability, rather we're talking gender. Mm -hmm. We need everyone to be an advocate for that, right? And so the thing about policies now is they tend to look neutral, right? And so we don't often have policies that says, hey, if you're of this subpopulation, you're not going to get this, or mm -hmm. this is good. we're going to do this to this group and not that group, right? And so that's where that quote unquote, and I say quote unquote, because I don't believe policies are neutral until you can show me the data that you have collected and how it's impacted communities of color, how it's impacted uh, communities who experience disabilities, how it's impacted 
our various communities. I, you, I have to, you have to see that in numbers. And so that is one of the biggest ways to advocate because it's, then it doesn't become about you or me. It becomes about the facts of it. And for so long, we've made decisions based on data. We don't need to change now. We need to do it a little differently. And differently is now to break it down to that next step to say, how is this impacting specific subgroups? And when we see that it's disproportionately impacting specific subgroups, and we have those spaces at the table, then we question these policies and figure out where the change needs to happen while including the population that it's disproportionately impacting so we understand why it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. We always used to break down data down by um, ethnicity, but, and, and often, you know, whether kids were receiving special ed services or GT or, you know, all the different um, uh, English language learners, but there are other areas that I know that we didn't break, break them down in ways that maybe there were some impacts that we didn't see, you know, mm -hmm. so like looking at them from different dimensions would probably have been really helpful. Um, and you do, you do see a lot when you start breaking it down in your, we called subpopulations. When you break them down your subpops, it was like, sometimes it was like striking, um, strikingly obvious that something was up. And when you start with that data, they, they just may not even realize what, what's happening, you know, but if you break it down yourself and so, so I guess if you see something happening, you can go to the data to confirm it. And then mm -hmm. you can take that with you to your, your big meeting, <laughs> your big table meeting. Um, yeah. what are some things that we could do if we see things happening in the classroom? Like what are like maybe having a dialogue with the teacher? Because I mean, that's what coaches do. We, we push and we support and we push and we support. Um, so what are some things that we could do with a teacher to support them in that area? Absolutely. So before we move on to that, if I can make oh, one other point, I just wanted yeah. to build off of what, what you were saying around the data and the importance of breaking it down, right? Because oftentimes we think that we're doing really good. So for instance, if we look at the data and the data says, oh, only 20% or 10% of our students have been expelled in the course of mm -hmm. two years, right? We may think, see, we're, we're on track. I mean, we wanna you know, reduce it a little bit, but we're doing pretty good. Um, but then when you look at that 10% and you see that 80% may be African-American boys, mm -hmm. then <laughs> we have a huge red flag that no, we are not doing good. Yeah. Because why is this happening in one sector? Right. And so I, I say that because I think it's important to start to break as much as we can down and not just things that we think that we're doing poorly on. It's the things that we think that we're doing amazing on we, that we want to confirm that we're doing amazing across the board for all of our students. Um, so so thanks for letting me highlight that piece of it. Yeah, I'm glad you did. And then in classroom, I think coaches can really help in, in so many different ways. Uh, microaggressions happen. They start. Mm -hmm. And again, I know we're talking beyond early childhood, but they start in early childhood classroom, right? And just children don't have the language to name that that's a microaggression. And some adults don't. Because sometimes I'm like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute, I don't like how that just felt. I yeah. that was, you know what I mean? Um, but I, I think uh, one of the things that coaches can help teachers do is name what's happening and help kiddos name it. 
regardless of what age they are in, right? I know once we get to older kids, it's not like necessarily put someone on the spot, but even if it's pulling a child aside and saying, hey, I don't know how that felt for you. Um, that felt like this for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the earlier that we can help children understand how to name that, right, the more effective it is for both kids. One for the child who may not have, that may not have been their actual intention, but it was the impact. And that's what we go off of is impact, not intention. But also for that kid who it may have been just another strike at, you know, yeah. why I don't really even want to come to school. Yeah. Could you define microaggressions so that, that people really know what they're looking at whenever they see it? Yes. And so microaggressions look very different um, from uh, different ages and stages. And so in, 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 with our younger kids, it, <laughs> um, it can look at it can look like anything from someone saying a comment around, um, no, that doll doesn't look like you. Or um, a comment around someone's appearance, right? Mm -hmm. But essentially what a microaggression is, is it's a term that is used uh, that has, again, it may not have ill intentions, but it has a negative connotation that comes from a stereotype, typically from marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. And so what you start to hear from older is people questioning where people are originally from, Mm -hmm. or um, if someone speaks more than a certain number of language or indicating that they may this or that. Um, I'm I'm trying to do it from a higher level without perpetuating the issue. You can kind of tell where I'm struggling. I'm like, how do I say it without, you know, I don't want to. Yeah. engage in a microaggression, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, but also just like smaller things like, oh, really? Like for me, I sometimes I get, oh, you're a doctor? Uh-huh. Right? And so um, I always, uh, not I always, but I've learned to, to ask that, right? And not in a, a disrespectful way, but again, a lot of times people don't know that they are engaging in a microaggression because uh-huh of unconscious bias. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And children, again, if they weren't taught it, they caught it. And now mm-hmm. they brought it into the classroom and they see a kid that doesn't resemble them, whether it be within any diverse area. Uh, and, and then it spills over. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I've heard lots of things and you know, it's too bad that whenever, whenever you said you're talking about microaggressions in the classroom, I pictured an experience I had with a teacher who was making a remark and didn't even realize, I think that it was not appropriate. Um, And I saw it happen in action and I was like, Oh my gosh, how am I even going to, I mean, what am I even going to say to this? You know, and it's sometimes you're put in that position that it's such a challenge um, and it can be difficult to figure out where do I even start with this person? Cause they're coming from a framework that, doesn't that didn't realize that this was not okay and so it's like okay how do I help them understand why it's not okay without just preaching you know (laughs) this whole long well this is the history of that and this is why it's a problem and this is how it affects you and that's people you know they do get turned off whenever you feel whenever they feel like you're coming from a position you know of of um 
like overbearing, you know, or like over teaching, but it was something important that, I mean, they, they, they need to be addressed, especially when they're coming from teachers, but I mean, certainly children as well. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I, and I think there, there's two parts to that piece of it. Right. And so I think one piece is uh, to seek clarification. And so as teachers are, as coaches are working with teachers, one of the best ways to interrupt a microaggression and I say interrupt because it may be scary in that moment to name or identify that for a teacher, mm-hmm. but it also could stop that same behavior for next situation, yes. mm-hmm. right? And so some, some ways in which, you know, I think we can do that is just saying, hey, can you explain what you meant by that? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I think someone could take that in a different way. And I just want to offer you this other perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really, really important for uh, children, especially young children, for teachers to model that for them. Right. And again, I think that goes back into social emotional skills and, and so forth. So that children then learn how to do that for themselves. And I think that that, that creates a safe space um, and, and, and really, uh, fundamental skills that, that young children need. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So if a coach is listening to all of this and they're thinking, okay, I really want to make this more of like my mission and my work. I want to start focusing on this and they want to start advocating for equity at their school. What is the first step that they could take tomorrow? Oh, that now that is a dynamite question. <laughs> uh, what is the first step that they can take tomorrow? I think the first step that they I would uh, suggest that they take is one to identify who at their school uh, they have a, a support system with, mm. right? And then begin to plan what this could look like. And so that first step of how do we begin to normalize some of the conversations that we need to have here? And, and so that, that's one of the first steps that I would offer that they take. If, if they don't feel like they have a strong, found, uh, a supportive foundation and, and the ways in which their current administration is, is set up, then I would suggest that they start to look at some of the disparities that they see within their school, right? So that they can come from uh, come to the conversation as a solution-oriented um, perspective around, hey, this is one of the things that I noticed, and I'm interested in how we can start to move to close this gap. I love that answer because it's not anything I would have even thought to do. Oh, that's so great. Um, and then, of course, the other one, I have to say, just okay. visit drlindsaywilson.com. I was just going to ask you. I was going to ask you where people can find you to learn more. So I'm glad that you shared that. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Awesome. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say thank you. Oh, I'm glad that you shared that. Yeah, absolutely. So drlindsay.com is uh, where you can find, find me. And, and there are some resources there and also still working on a few other types of, you know, individual trainings as well. And so I recognize that some schools are ready, set, ready to jump in. And then some coaches and teachers are on their own, taking their own path. And so there's certainly something for everyone there. 
Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here today because I think this was, this was so much information and I'm sure it's going to impact some, some coaches really positively. I appreciate you sharing it. Well, I, I appreciate um, the opportunity and, and just the, the great dialogue. Oh, thank you. Me too. I loved it. <laughs>